Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 4.30 on the 13th of April, 2006, and we've had some requests for a historical evaluation of uh, Jesus. And I think that ties very well into what it is we'll be chatting about on the way home tonight, so I thought it might be worth having a look at some of these contradictions. And I will post a link to this on the Freedom Main Radio board. So if you want to have a look at this source, uh, feel free to. Now, uh, I'll just sort of give you a note about the source. This comes from a Muslim source, and of course the Muslims not so keen on the whole Jesus being the Son of God thing. They're fine with him being a prophet, but not the whole Son of God. So this is where they're coming from, and they've spent some considerable amount of energy uh, trying to figure out the contradictions in the uh, New Testament or those in uh, uh, relating to Jesus. So I thought I would mention these just so people are uh, a bit more familiar with them. Now, in Matthew 2.1, Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So, Jesus is born in about, uh, about the year 6 BC. Now, in Luke 2, verses 1 to 7, he says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenus was governor of Syria, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. So Jesus was born about the year 7 CE, uh, which is 13 years later than it is mentioned in Matthew. And... You can have a look also at Acts 9, uh, 26, 29. And you know what? I'm not going to go with all the verses. You can look at the uh, website, which I'll send to you. Uh, Paul is saved in Galatians. It uh, doesn't seem to be in Acts 9. Uh, you can see that uh, when Christ appeared, uh, he saw, he heard a voice but saw no man. And in Acts 22, you, he hears no voice and just sees a light. In Matthew, Jesus' apostle's name, the twelfth is Lebus, whose surname was Thaddeus. Luke 6, 14 to 16, apostles' names are now different. The twelfth in Luke is Judas, the brother of James. Now, Matthew says that Judas hangs himself, and Acts says that Judas falls headlong, and his bowels gush, uh, which I can't imagine is, is fun. Matthew says that Elias is John the Baptist. John says that Elias is not John the Baptist. Uh, in Luke... And Romans, uh, according to the flesh, 41 men are between Jesus and David. I guess that's a genealogy. And in Matthew and Romans, according to the flesh, there are 26 men between Jesus and David. And in Matthew, there's a temple before a passing fig tree. And in Matthew as well, the temple is after passing a fig tree. And in Mark, uh, Jesus was crucified by the third hour. In John, uh, he was not crucified by the sixth hour. And in Matthew, Luke, and Mark, Simon carries the cross, and in John, it says that Jesus uh, carries the cross. And in Mark, uh, it, uh, he gave wine with myrrh to drink, and in Matthew, he gave vinegar with gall to drink, which I can't imagine is going to be quite as tasty. In Matthew, Jesus is the son of Joseph, son of Jacob. In Luke, Jesus is the son of Joseph, son of Heli. And in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is seen by 12. And in Matthew, Jesus is seen by 11. In 1 Chronicles 7, 6, there are three sons. Uh, Benjamin has three sons. Uh, in Chronicles, there are five sons. In Genesis, there are ten sons. And of course, we don't really know how many sons Benjamin had uh, in that particular situation. In Acts, uh, Paul falls to the ground. Others remain standing. Paul receives a very simple command. In Acts, Paul falls to the ground and others also fall to the ground. Paul receives a long sermon and detailed um, instructions. In Matthew, uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons make the request. And in Mark, 
the Zebedee's sons make the request uh, themselves, which I guess is fairly significant. Now, as to the whole tomb thing, uh, there are four different uh, accounts of who visited the tomb. Uh, in Matthew, we hear at the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. Mark says, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Uh, John says, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Luke says it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And, of course, there are four different accounts of who saw what at Jesus' grave. So Matthew says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake, and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. Now Mark says, And entering into the sepulchre they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. Luke says, And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. John says, and seeth two angels in white sitting, on the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. So there's uh, some uh, contradictions there. Now Luke says, um, And returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of, Jesus, of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. So the three women in speaking. Mark says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices, that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. And they went out quickly, and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled, and were amazed. Neither said anything to any man, for they were afraid. So there are three different women, and they're afraid, and they don't speak. And John says, my witness is not true, and John also says, my record is uh, true. Now, Jesus' last words. There are three different narrations. Luke says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, under thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. John says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Matthew says, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, saying, Eli, Eli, lama, something, something, something in Aramaic, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So there was lots of exiting of ghosts, but the uh, script is a little bit confusing here. Now, this one's a little bit confusing, and perhaps biblical people can tell me a little bit more about this. It's, con it's confusing. I think it sort of makes sense, but, uh, but let me know. Acts says, Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And that's the King David. Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. In other words, was Jesus the descendant of King David as foretold in Acts, or according to the flesh, or was he the Son of God in terms of the, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit? Now, Matthew says about Jesus, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... 
blah, blah, blah. Luke says, And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people came near him, or came to hear him, and he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, right, so looking up, from, looking down from a mountain or looking up from a plain, we're not, uh, we're not sure. Now, of course, the Muslims believe that um, uh, something quite different about the visibility of God. So, for instance, in Exodus, they say, uh, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, Genesis says, and the Lord appeared into him and said, Exodus said, And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts. Exodus says, And the Lord spake to Moses face to face, as a man speaketh to his friend. Genesis says also, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And there's lots of other verses that claim that God can be seen. Now John says, No man hath seen God at any time. Exodus says, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall, uh, for there shall no man see me and live. Uh, John also says, No man hath seen God at any time, as I mentioned. Timothy says, whom no man has seen or can see. So, of course, these verses claim that God uh, cannot be seen. Now, the question of regret and guilt is interesting as well. So, Malachi says, for I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither a shadow of turning. Jonah says, and God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. So God sort of decides to uh, smite people and then decides not to because he repents. Genesis, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So this is not somebody who's unchanging, but a being that cannot see the future changes his mind and grieves. Now Matthew says, uh, and they stripped him, and put on him a scarlet robe. I think that's Jesus. And John says, And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Now, there's lots of things about this where people say, well, maybe it was uh, they were looking into the sun or looking away from the sun, but, I mean, these are different colored robes, for sure. Now, King says, And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Genesis says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now John says, the sort of New Testament stuff, John says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And in the Old Testament, uh, it says, And it came to pass after these things in Genesis, that God did tempt Abraham. Now James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Isaiah says, Prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. Deuteronomy says, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Right. So do you inherit the sin of your fathers or not? Now Matthew says that a centurion came in person. Luke says the centurion sent for elders of the Jews. The place uh, where Jesus stayed when he was in Bethany, uh, Matthew says that, uh, Matthew and Mark say it was in the house of Simon the leper. Luke says that it was the Pharisee's house. John, on the other hand, claims that it was the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, uh, regarding an ointment, uh, Matthew and Mark say 
uh, sorry, Matthew Mark claimed that a random woman bought the ointment. Luke says it was a sinful woman. John says it was Mary, Lazarus' sister. Now, Matthew and Mark say that the woman anointed Jesus' head. Luke and John both say she anointed his feet. Mark claims that some were indignant. Uh, Matthew claims that the disciples were indignant. Luke claims that the Pharisee alone was indignant. John claims that Judas Iscariot alone was indignant. indignant. Now, in Romans, Adam alone is responsible for the original sin. Now, in Timothy, Eve alone, and not Adam, was responsible for the uh, original sin. Now, Mark says that Jesus spoke with the elders of the Jews on the third day after his arrival in Jerusalem. Matthew says that Jesus spoke with the elders of the Jews on the second day after his arrival. Now, Matthew says that Jesus healed a leper, then a servant of the centurion, then healed the mother of Simon's wife. Mark says that Jesus healed the mother of Simon's wife, then a leper, then the servant of the centurion. Matthew says that Jesus healed two blind men after leaving Jericho. Mark says that Jesus healed one blind man called Bartimaeus after leaving Jericho. Matthew 9.18, the ruler came and said, my daughter is even now dead. Mark says the ruler said his daughter is near death. After they came near his house, someone came out and told him that his daughter had died while he was away. When Jesus, and now Matthew says, when Jesus came to the country of the Gergesenes, he met two men possessed with devils coming out of the tombs. Mark and Luke say that when Jesus came into the country of the Gardenia, <laughs> whatever they were, he met one man possessed with devils coming out of the tombs. Now, there are at least two different narrations on the conversion of the disciples. In Mark and Matthew, it says, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. They followed him, and when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they followed him too. All of them were mending their nets when they met Jesus. John says, On the banks of the Jordan, rather than by the Sea of Galilee, John the Baptist pointed out Jesus to two of his disciples, and they followed Jesus. One of the two which heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew found his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. Jesus named him Cephas. The next day Jesus went into Galilee and found Philip. Philip then found Nathanael. At no time was anyone mending nets in this particular account. Now Mark says that after departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus came under the Sea of Galilee. One man that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech was brought before Jesus. Jesus healed him. Matthew says Jesus departed and came to the Sea of Galilee, quote, and great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them, insomuch as sorry, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, they glorified in the God of Israel. By the way, you have to see the film Monty Python's Life of Brian just to see the man lean forward and say, O oh Lord, I am affected by a bald spot. Now Matthew says that on the cross, I guess, both thieves mocked Jesus. Luke says one of the thieves mocked Jesus while the other rebuked him and asked Jesus to remember him in heaven. Jesus promised him that he would be with him in heaven. Now, Acts, Acts says that Judas purchased a field with the pieces of silver. Matthew says the chief priests purchased a field with the pieces of silver. Matthew says the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, then to a high mountain. Luke says the devil took Jesus to a high mountain, then to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, this one's a little confusing, but I think it makes sense. 
John says, Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Matthew says, At the last came two false witnesses, and said, This fellow Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Of course, the question is, how can they be false witnesses if Jesus actually did say this? Matthew says that the woman who cried for her daughter was from Canaan. Mark says that she was a Greek and a Syrophoenician as well, which I assume is not the same as a Canaan because it's much uh, much harder to pronounce. Now, this is a rather interesting one and a little tricky in terms of following, right? As I mentioned in earlier podcasts, following these rules is a little tricky. Roman says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. James says, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and not have works? Can faith save him? But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, in Samuel, they talk about 700 horsemen. In 1 Chronicles, they talk about 7,000 horsemen. Uh, in Chronicles, they talk about three years' famine. In Samuel, they talk about seven years' famine. Uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses is deprived of the land of Ammon. In Joshua, Moses is given the land of Ammon as an inheritance. Now, the numerology of the Bible is not too clear. So, for instance, in Chronicles, we have a, a time span of eight years, three months, and ten days. In Kings, it's 18 years and three months. In Samuel, they talk about 40,000 horsemen uh, and 700 foot soldiers. And they also talk about, in Chronicles, 7,000 foot soldiers. Foot soldiers sorry, 7,000 horsemen and 40,000 foot soldiers. Kings, they talk about 2,000 baths. Chronicles, they talk about 3,000 baths. In Samuel, they say Michal had no children and also that he had five sons. Genesis says mankind shall not live past 120 years. Genesis also gives the ages of people as like 500, 438, 433, 464. So maybe it's not like earth years. Chronicles talk about 4,000 stalls. One Kings talks about 40,000 stalls. Isaiah says God does not faint nor weary. Exodus says God rested and was refreshed. Genesis says God creates plants, then animals, then man. In Genesis it also says God creates man, then plants, then animals, then uh, women. Now in Samuel, David is brought, uh, David buys the ark after fighting the Philistines, and also in Samuel, David buys the ark before fighting the Philistines. Now Genesis commands Noah to bring to the ark of every living thing, of all flesh, two of every sort, thou shalt bring into the ark to keep them alive, male and female, of fowls, of cattle, of every creeping thing of the earth. Now in Genesis also, Noah is asked to bring to the ark, of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean, by two, the male and his female, of fowls of the air, by sevens, the male and the female. So two uh, uh, or not, uh, we don't really know. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, you have a righteous fest. Noah was righteous, Job was righteous, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous, Abraham was righteous, and some men are righteous, which is what makes their prayers effective. Now, in Romans, no one is righteous, not one. Uh, and, of course, John says no one was or is um, righteous. Now, Matthew says, with God all things are possible, and uh, so does Mark. But Judges uh, says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. And Exodus, God permits adultery. This is one of the Ten Commandments. In Hosea, God commands Hosea to take a wife of harlotry. 
Now, in Numbers, Aaron died on Mount Hor. After Aaron's death, the Israelites journeyed from Mount Hor to Zalmona, to Bumon. And in Deuteronomy, Aaron died in Mozera. After Aaron's death, the Israelites journeyed from Mozera to Gudgoda, to Jotbath. It's all starting to sound very Klingon. Now, we could go on and on, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to sort of break my uh, Aramaic uh, uh, pronunciation brain, so let's not do that. I mean, the list goes on and on. I hope this is just a small sample. But um, there are uh, some Christian scholars that acknowledge that there are between 48,000 and 50,000 errors or contradictions uh, in the Bible. Now, even if you are you know, really, really into faith, it's going to be uh, tricky to get all 50,000 of these errors uh, to, um, uh, to go away. And, of course, you could say, well, of course, it's, it's a book, it's translated, and so on. But, I mean, we're not just talking about, uh, you know, an ancient John Grisham novel here. We're talking about the authentic original Word of God. And the Bible itself says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. And that's a little tricky to figure out, then, if the Word is going to uh, stand forever, uh, whether or not uh, these 50,000 errors uh, sort of make sense. Now, there's not a whole lot of forgiveness from our friend Mr. Christ about all of this stuff, because Jesus says, or Luke says that Jesus says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. So, you know, you don't get much off for the slip of the laws, like based on the letter of the laws, and since there are these tens of thousands of contradictions, it's a little hard to sort of figure out if missing one of them makes you unjust to a great degree, uh, how you could uh, be just. Now, I think it's important to understand that what is called the New Testament now, uh, these were not officially approved into New Testament canons or inspired books until many centuries after the departure of Jesus. So tens of generations of Christians lived and died after the departure of Jesus, never having known or seen sort of a New Testament or the Bible that's in our possession today. Now, of course, after Jesus died or fled or left or whatever, the apostles and a lot of other people began to write their own Gospels. Now, each one of these authors, they travel off to other lands, they get, get their followers, and those followers would adopt this man's Gospel as his sort of personal Bible, as the Bible. Now, of course, unscrupulous people and cult leaders and crazy people began to write Gospels as well and claim that they were from a given apostle or that they themselves were receiving divine inspirations. So new, crazy, wild, innovative teachings now begin to be introduced into the religion of Jesus. And you've got the natural kind of competition that you would have between mystics who are all claiming to be the absolute uh, uh, bearers of truth. And each person says, I alone have the true gospel of Jesus and no one else. And of course, some of those people believe that uh, Jesus was a mortal messenger of God and nothing others. Others thought he was partially divine. Others thought he was a true God, but independent of God of himself to those who thought it was, should be a, trim, a trinity. And those who claimed that Mary uh, too was a God, those who believed in two gods, uh, one good and the other evil. And this you know, really began to snowball into a real war uh, of the Gospels. Everyone curses and damns everybody else. The Christian sects are butchering one another right and left. 
Ah, there are all these debates and councils and so on, but nobody actually gains prominence in this sort of early history of the church. So, of course, naturally, like any religious cults that are warring for power, they begin to learn, uh, sorry, they begin to look towards the Roman Empire. It's a pagan empire, but it's the dominant superpower. So anyone of these crazy sects who can enlist the uh, aid of the emperor is going to have a pretty good go at becoming the dominant religion. Uh, Constantine was greatly troubled, of course, by the swelling ranks of his Christian subjects and the inner wars, the fightings, the back and forth, which was not really good uh, for the um, for the empire as a whole. Now, the Roman Empire support began to sort of swing between uh, those who believed in the unity of God and those who believed in a sort of trinity. And the Trinitarians finally gained the upper hand, and they almost uh, almost wiped the Unitarians out. Uh, so they were the ones who selected and collected the, quote, truly inspired Gospels into one volume. This sort of became the New Testament. They burned all the other Gospels, and there were sweeping campaigns of inquisitions which, which swept back and forth across the Roman Empire. Anyone who was found in possession of these false Gospels was put to death, and this Gospel was burned, and oh, it was just a complete mess. Now, this went on for centuries and centuries. People are convicted of heresy and burned to death for lots of reasons. You've got your land and property confiscated. Uh, physical torture uh, is used quite a bit uh, to extract a confession of guilt, which is then death by burning, uh, stretching on limbs on the rack, burning with live coals, and a vertical rack. And this was just horrendous. I mean, if you uh, denied the charges of being a heretic and you could not uh, counterproof, which is, of course, almost impossible, then you get life imprisonment, execution, total confiscation of property. And, of course, we know this is philosopher Giordino Bruno, Galileo, Joan of Arc, the religious uh, Knights Templar, all this sort of things. So, uh, basically, you have... Uh, some uh, statistics, right? Some statistics say that over this uh, time period, 12 million people are put to death by the church uh, inquisitors. Uh, the, 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 uh, I guess at this point it would have been the Catholic Church. Now, in the middle of the 15th century, uh, you've got this vicious persecution campaign. Uh, they're aiming at the Maranos, which is the converts from Judaism, and the Moriscos, converts from Islam. And there were lots of attacks upon these people. And then, uh, of course, the uh, history uh, is written by the victors, so, uh, you know, all of the historians say, oh, we managed to overcome the wicked, defeat the blasphemers, burn the devils, sorcerers, and so on. And this is really the books that have a lot of influence on Western history books, and those are sort of what we believe uh, today. Now, I think it's also important to understand that a lot of the um, uh, practices of Christianity were not uh, invented by Christianity for sure, and that's something which is important to understand. So, for instance, uh, early Christians, uh, they celebrated Jesus' birthday on January the 6th, and Armenian Christians still do. In Alexandria, in what is now Egypt, the birthday of their god-man, Aion, was also celebrated on January the 6th. And Christians and most pagans eventually celebrated the birthday of their god-man on December the 25th, now, according to an ancient Christian tradition, Christ died on March 23rd and was resurrected on March 25th. These dates agree precisely with the death and resurrection of Atis. Now, there's a very important ritual, a sacrament, uh, which is uh, pretty common in the ancient world, which is that um, a ritual meal of bread and wine, which symbolized the God-man's body and blood, and, of course, the followers um, are pretty much uh, generally... <laughs> Uh, accused of um, of cannibalism. Early Christians initiated converts in March and April by baptism. Mithraism initiated their new members at this time um, as well. 
Early Christians were naked when they were baptized. After immersion, they then put on white clothing and a crown. They carried a candle and walked in a procession to a basilica. Followers of Mithra will also baptize naked, put on white clothing and a crown, and walked in a procession to the temple. However, um, uh, they carried uh, torches. So that's, uh, that's very different. Now, at uh, Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were recorded as speaking in tongues. At Trophonius and Delos, the pagan priestesses also spoke in tongues. They appeared to speak in such a way that each person present heard her words in the observer's own language. An inscription to Mithras reads, He who will not eat of my body and drink of my blood, so that he will be made on with me and I with him, the same shall not know salvation. In John, Jesus is said to have repeated this theme, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now the Bible records that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One went to heaven, and the other to hell. In the Mithras Mysteries, a common image showed Mithras flanked by two torchbearers, one on either side. One held a torch pointed upwards, the other downwards. This symbolized ascent to heaven, or uh, descent to hell. In Atis, a bull was slaughtered while on a perforated platform. The animal's blood flowed down over an initiate who stood in a pit under the platform. The believer was then considered to have been born again. Poor people could only afford a sheep, and so were literally washed in the blood of the lamb. This practice was interpreted uh, symbolically by uh, Christians. So there's lots of additional points of similarity between Mithraism and Christianity. Um, St. Augustine even declared that the priests of Mithraism worshipped the same god uh, as he did. Followers of both religions celebrated a ritual involving bread. It was called Misa in Latin or Mass in English. Both the Catholic Church and Mithraism had a total of seven sacraments. Uh, Epiphany, Jan the Sixth, was originally the festival in which the followers of Mithra celebrated the visit of the Magi to their newborn God-man. The Christian Church took this over uh, in, the, uh, in the ninth century. Now, the historical deity that Jesus seems to have the most in common with is Horus. Now, Horus is an Egyptian uh, god, uh, Horus, Horus. Uh, and um, he was worshipped thousands of years before the first century, um, the time when Jesus was ministering in Palestine. Horus was often represented as a stylized eye symbol, symbolizing the eye of a falcon. He's often shown as an infant cradled by his mother, Isis. He was considered to be the son of two major Egyptian deities, the god Osiris, Osiris sorry, and the goddess Ibis. In adulthood, he avenged his father's murder and became recognized as the god of civil order and justice. Even each of the Egyptian pharaohs were believed to be a living embodiment and incarnation of uh, Horus. So let's have a uh, look at the lives of Horus and Jesus sort of side by side. So stories from the life of Horus have been circulating for centuries before uh, the, uh, the birth of Jesus. And if any copying occurs, it's not Christian to Egyptian. It's definitely the other way around. Because uh, there are, in fact, <laughs> um, uh, some people uh, argue that, uh, this one scholar argues, all of the essential ideas of both Judaism and Christianity come primarily from Egyptian sources. Egyptian religions. The author Gerald Massey discovered nearly 200 instances of immediate correspondence between the mythical Egyptian material and the allegedly historical Christian writings about Jesus. Horus was indeed the archetypical pagan Christ. So let's have a look at some similarities between these two uh, deities. So, um, event, uh, conception. Uh, Horus was conceived by a virgin. Uh, Jesus was conceived uh, by a virgin. His father was, uh, Horus was the only begotten son of the god 
Osiris, and Jesus was the only begotten son of Jehovah, or Jehovah in the form of the Holy Spirit. His uh, Horus's mother was Mary, or M-E-R-I, and Nazareth's mother was Miriam, a.k.a. Mary. A foster father was Joseph. Uh, Jesus was Joseph. His foster father's ancestry was of royal descent for both Horus and uh, Jesus. And Horus was born in a cave. Jesus was born in a cave or a stable. The Annunciation was by an angel to Isis' mother. And Nazareth, of course, was by an angel to uh, Mary, his mother. The uh, birth of Horus was heralded by the star Sirius, the morning star. The birth of Jesus was heralded by an unidentified star in the east. And the birth date of Horus, ancient Egyptians paraded a manger and a child representing Horus through the streets at the time of winter solstice, which was typically December the 21st. Now, of course, Jesus is December the 25th. This date is chosen to occur on the same date as the birth of Mithra, Dionysus, and the Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus, sorry, unconquerable sun, etc. Birth announcement for Horus was by angels, and of course, was for uh, uh, Nazareth, for Jesus of Nazareth as well. The birth witnesses for Horus were shepherds, same for Jesus. The later witnesses to birth were three solar deities for Horus and three wise men for Jesus. Death threats during infancy, Herod tries to have Horus murdered, and Herod tries to have Jesus murdered. Uh, handling the threat, um, the god uh, that tells Horus's mother, Come thou goddess Isis, hide thyself with thy child. An angel tells Jesus' father to arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Now, the rite of passage ritual. Uh, Horus came of age with a special ritual when his eye was restored. And Jesus, of course, was taken by his parents to the temple for what is today called a bar mitzvah ritual. Age at ritual was 12 for Horus and 12 for Jesus. Now, the break in life history for Horus, there's no data whatsoever between the ages of 12 and 30. Now, for Jesus, it's actually between 12 and 30. Now, the baptism location for Horus was in the river (laughs) Eridanus, and for Jesus, it's in the river Jordan. The age of baptism for both was 30, baptized. Uh, Horus was baptized by Anup the baptizer, and uh, John the Baptist baptized Christ. Both Anup and John were later beheaded, and the temptation, he was, uh, Horus was taken from the desert of Armenta up a high mountain by his arch-rival Sut. Sut, a.k.a. Set, was a precursor for the Hebrew Satan. And, of course, um, uh, as uh, Horus was taken from a desert to a high mountain, Jesus was taken from a desert in Palestine to a high mountain by his arch-rival uh, Satan. Horus resists temptation, of course. Jesus resists temptation, of course. Close followers of Horus, 12 disciples. Uh, I'm sure you know the number for Jesus. What did Horus do? Well, uh, he walked on water, uh, he cast out demons, he healed the sick, he restored sight to the blind, he, quote, stilled the sea by his power. And, let's see, Jesus walked on water, cast out demons, healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, he ordered the sea with a peace be still uh, command. Now, Horus raised Osiris, his dead father, from the grave, and Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, who was not, of course, his dead father. Now, the location where this resurrection miracle occurred for Horus was Anu, an Egyptian city where the rites of the death, burial, and resurrection of Horus were enacted annually. Hebrews added their prefix for house, Beth, to Anu to produce Beth Anu, or the house of Anu, since U and Y were interchangeable. In antiquity, Beth Anu became Bethany, the location mentioned, uh, where the resurrection miracle occurred for Jesus in John 11. Now... The origin of Lazarus' name in the Gospel of John. 
Asar was an alternative name for Osiris, Horus's father, who Horus raised from the dead. He was referred to as the Asar, as a sign of respect. Translated into Hebrew, this is El Asar. The Romans added the prefix as to indicate a male name. Producing El Asarus. Over time, the E was dropped, the S became Z, producing Lazarus. And Horus was transfigured on a mountain, and so was Jesus. Uh, the key address of Horus was called a Sermon on the Mount, and in Jesus it's either a Sermon on the Mount or a Sermon on the Plain, depending which uh, you go with. Um, the the uh, method of death for Horus, he was actually crucified, and Jesus, I do believe, the same, accompanied by two thieves, and Jesus was two thieves. His, uh, he was buried in a tomb, and of course in a tomb. After death, Horus descended into hell and was resurrected after three days. Uh, Jesus descended into hell, was resurrected uh, after about 30 to 38 hours, and the resurrection was uh, announced by women uh, for both Horus and Jesus. Uh, in the future, you're supposed to reign for a thousand years in the millennium. For Horus and Jesus uh, was pretty much uh, the same kind of thing. Now, some of the characteristics of Horus and Jesus. Uh, nature, he's regarded as a mythical character, and uh, he is regarded, uh, Jesus is regarded as a first century human man-god. The main role of Horus, savior of humanity, savior of humanity for Jesus, status god-man, god-man, common portrayal. Virgin Isis holding the infant Horus. Jesus, Virgin Mary holding the infant Jesus. Title, uh, K-R-S-T, Cursed, the Anointed One, uh, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Other names, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, the Bread of Life, the Son of Man, the Word, the Fisher, the Winnower, and uh, the same for, for Christ, of course. And the Zodiac sign, Horus is associated with Pisces, the fish, and uh, Jesus is associated with Pisces, uh, the fish. The main symbol uh, for Horus is a fish, beetle, divine, and a shepherd's crook, uh, exactly the same for Jesus, of course. And... The, some of the teachings. Let's have a look at some of the teachings of Horus and Jesus. Now, for Horus, the criteria for salvation at the place of judgment is, quote, I have given bread to the hungry man, and water to the thirsty man, and clothing to the naked person, and a boat to the shipwrecked mariner. Jesus says, For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. And I am statements, Horus says, I am Horus in glory, I am the Lord of light, I am the victorious one, I am the heir of endless time, I, even I, am he that knoweth the path to heaven. I am Horus, the prince of eternity, I am Horus, who steppeth forward through eternity, eternity and everlastingness is my name. I am the possessor of bread in Anu, I have bread in heaven with Ra. Uh, Christ says, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth and the life. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. I am the living bread that cometh down from heaven. Well, I mean, you can go on and on, and, and feel free to look this stuff up. It's uh, very interesting to realize, of course, just how much uh, Jesus' life has in common with prior man-god or deities. And so, to me, uh, you know, to be, to be perfectly frank, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as I drive home, to me, when you say that, well, Horus is silly, but Jesus exists, it's exactly the same to me as saying uh, Batman uh, is silly, the Green Hornet is silly, but Superman now, he exists. And I have pillaged that line from a, uh, somebody on, on the, uh, the extra DVD of The God Who Wasn't There, which is an interesting documentary. 
But to say that this god is original or this god has some sort of a hold or uniqueness, it's exactly the same. Everywhere you look, you see these man-gods with exactly the same characteristics or approximately the same. And of course, since some of this stuff wasn't written down until 900 years after the death of somebody that there's little, if any, historical evidence for, uh, obviously means, I mean, we can't even figure out what started World War One with all the documentary evidence. There's still lots of disagreement about Iraq, which is happening right now. And to think that, and this is with all of the modern technology that we have, to imagine that anything of any truth could survive nine centuries or at least a few centuries before being written down is silly. And to think that a religion can simply come along without incorporating the, the uh, main aspects of a prior religion doesn't make any sense. So if you have trouble believing in the divinity of Horus, it seems to me exactly the same as you can now understand my perspective about Jesus. In fact, it's even less believable because if you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe in Horus, you at least accept that a God can exist. If you don't believe in any of this nonsense, then the two are indistinguishable. So your feelings about Horus and Zeus and so on times about <laughs> 10 million and my feelings about Jesus and this sort of stuff. So I hope that makes some sense, at least where my skepticism comes from. So uh, we will chat about this a little bit more in the car. I will tune in. Uh, hopefully you will tune in to part three. Thanks.